Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed us, saying, What is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven is the one who will give us success, and we, are, we his servants are going to start building, but you have no share or claim or historic right in Jerusalem. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burnt ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, That stone wall they are building. Any fox going up on it would break it down. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have hurled insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. So wisdom shouts in the streets. What do you think about that? One of the... Oh, actually, that, I don't need that. Okay. But I would be grateful for the music stand. So, if you notice that Proverbs, which, by the way, rarely gets um, much airtime in the lectionary or otherwise, but one thing that stood out, and I'm not preaching on Proverbs today, but one thing as I was hearing it read is the last verse talked about, did anybody catch it? Who, who is a fool? You hear it? Who's defined as a fool? Okay, I'll give you, I'll give it away. <laughs> it says those who do not listen. <laughs> I didn't even. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, that that was not an underhanded way, but (laughs) I'm a little slow. Um, I say, I'll tell you why that hit me, and because. Uh, Karen Jackson and a cohort of hers colleague led a a workshop yesterday called Let Your Life Speak. 
a couple of you were there. And it was all about holy listening. And as I, and I, as I come up here, most of you have come and seen this conversational sermon. But I just want to reiterate, especially for visitors today, one of the reasons this transformation of sort of the difference of the expositional sermon versus the conversational was recognizing the importance of listening. That when we come to the text, it's not just me, right, that gets a word from the Lord. But rather, if we believe as a hallmark of Baptists that we are priests to one another, that means we need to listen together. And that we take it seriously that you have something to say as you enter into the text. So the focal point in the preaching moment is not the preacher delivering truth on the word, but we're coming all around the text, listening finding ourselves in the story of God. And so that's what our hope is in this, in this time together, is to listen. Listen as wisdom speaks. Sometimes shouting on the street corner. Especially in a text like, how many of you have been doing your devotionals in Nehemiah? No? Well... You got to love it when Suzanne came and said, We've been studying Nehemiah. At which point I said, That's great. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> and she engaged me, at which point I needed to go out and get my brush off my seminary books and notebooks on the text of Nehemiah. And here they had had a quite a vigorous discussion around Nehemiah in their worship, in their facilities gatherings, looking at this text. And so I wanted to bring it today. This is a very sort of where the rubber meets the road kind of conversation. So I thought it was best to do it in a conversation and that we listen to each other. And one of the pieces um, that she didn't say uh, overtly, but you did get this Insert into your worship guide. And so you may have wondered what that was all about. Of course, I trust your literacy skills, but I do want to say that one of the things that the team had brought before us was how can we as a church, taking wisdom from Nehemiah, build and rebuild together, doing it ourselves, coming together, each making a commitment. And so what this provides, and I'm going to speak back to this, but I wanted to give word to it now, was a way of saying there are things we can do as individuals that we can do it yourself projects. And then there are things best left to a contractor. Thanks be to God. <laughs> like installing drywall. I'm fresh out of my drywall skills. So thankfully we have some gifted professionals that are willing to step in that they've been in contact with. But it's a way of us pulling together our resources. Now, before you roll your eyes and think, oh my gosh, this is a sermon on our building or stewardship, I want you to lean in and listen 
to the text. And I have a question, actually, first. So anybody's just shouted out what you think. Is there anything spiritual, spiritual about fixing a light bulb? How many Baptists is this? <laughs> <laughs> okay, if you didn't hear that in the back, Hunter said, how many Baptists does it take to screw in a light bulb? <laughs> Why do we need to change? <laughs> Why do we need to change? Oh, my word, we are hot and ready for this morning. Yes. <laughs> okay, yes. Who needs light? Who needs light? It's just as important as anything else we do. It's just as important as anything else we do. We enable somebody else to worship. We enable... I do grief counseling in rooms with a light bulb. I need to read their face. So God's work happens with a light bulb. Okay. If you didn't hear that in the back, he said... During grief counseling, you, he needs light to be able to read people's body language. Well, it, and it gives us, it gives us, I don't know if ownership is the right word, but it, it, it gives us some ownership in, in the building in which we experience the body of Christ mm-hmm. that we can take out into the community. Okay. We come here as a community, and, and if we have ownership in it. I think we take hold much more strongly. Okay. Good. All right. So that, that's, that's a good wedding of the appetite. Uh, I, want us, I want us to um, hold, those, hold those thoughts because we're going to come back to that. And I want you to, um, we're going to enter this Nehemiah text. And it is quite something, as I mentioned. And I want to give a little background on it, and um, and let's see where we go. Okay, Nehemiah, if you didn't know, was one of the ones after the Babylonian exile. Which, by the way, a little history: the people of Israel, 587, Jerusalem was destroyed. Babylonians came in, and they were exiled into captivity, and then. In about 538, Cyrus of Persia said, you can go back to your land. Well, great, except it lay in ruin. And actually, there were several sort of movements of folks that went back. They didn't all go back at once. And in fact, um, they met with some opposition as well. Um, The first stage of kind of going back... uh, they began to work on the temple. They wanted to reconstruct the temple. But they met with opposition, economic crisis, and as already said at Free For All, they, some of them were more concerned with their own home than the house of God. So it sort of lay in repair, uh, disrepair for some time. And then there was a second stage of folks that went back and was Zerubbabel. You may have remembered that name from history. And then the third wave went with Ezra, who um, was an amazing scholar and one who sort of lifted up the Torah again in in the temple practice. And uh, finally, not until 448, so this is sort of the fourth wave, when Nehemiah decides it is right in time 
to, to complete the reconstruction. Now, I want to say a little bit about this, why I say it is right and it is the time. You've heard me talk about Kairos time. Uh, I love the position Nehemiah is in at the beginning of Nehemiah 1. He is the cupbearer to the king. He just happens to have to taste the wine for the king to sample it. (laughs) Well, what this actually allows him to do, if you remember the story of Esther, remember there's this great line where she says, for such a time as this, I have been put in the king's court to summon the king. You remember that? Well, it's very similar Nehemiah is in the king's court as the cupbearer and praying to God before he utters his mouth because he knows the danger at hand of saying, I have a need. And let's just say the Israelites were not the most favorable. But for such a time as this, a kairos time, in the fullness of time, the king granted his wish, which was to have right passage to Judah, where's where Jerusalem was, to grant letters of, to the forester that would provide timber. And even the king went above and beyond and granted officers of the army and cavalry to go with him. So Nehemiah has been given not just what he asked for, but above and beyond. Truly in the fullness of time, Kairos time, Nehemiah was allowed to go back and rebuild the city he loved, Jerusalem. If you look at in the verse that was read in Nehemiah 2:18 by Kathleen, you see that Kairos time quite clearly. Nehemiah says, "I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also the words that the king had spoken." And then they, the Jews that he meets back in Jerusalem, say, Let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. He had receptivity from the Jews that he encountered back in Jerusalem because he knew it was in the fullness of time that he was granted permission from the king and the grace of God was with him. And in one accord, they say, let's start building. Let's do this. Let's finish what we started. It's, it's been in disrepair for too long. Which, if, if you don't know much about some of this Jewish history, when in 587, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, the wall, which was mainly stone, was broken down. Obviously, uh, it wasn't to the ground like the gates. All the gates of the wall were made out of wood. And so they burnt to the ground and literally pretty much disappeared. So he is hoping and praying and asking of his fellow Israelites to to do something quite significant in rebuilding this wall. All right, so here's where I come to you to ask about the connection between the physical and the spiritual. Not only was this in the fullness of time, But Nehemiah was called to this specifically. He had a specific call on his life to take on this wall. How many of you have encountered someone 
that you saw them flourish in their calling, a very specific calling to take on a need in the community, to, um, for those of you who don't know, haven't heard Kathleen's story about homes for youth, people that hear at the right time, at the right place, hear God say, will you be a part of this holy and sacred work? And you see these people take it on, and you see people working in the spirit and the power of God, and it is something to behold. And this is pretty much what happens through Nehemiah, because not only is this a physical reform, but he calls them to spiritual renewal. He calls them to stop charging interests on loans. Could we use a little bit of that? (laughs) He's calling for social justice reforms. He's, causing to, he's calling them to stop commerce on the Sabbath. And on and on in the later chapters of Nehemiah. So see, you have your devotional workout. It's a beautiful blend. But one of the things that I think brought, or at least that caught my attention, is the immediate opposition he experiences from Day one. I mean, don't you think rebuilding a wall, a fortified city, is a, is a good thing, a noble thing? It's been granted by the king. And yet, did you notice the voices of opposition in the story? There will always be, when we answer God's call in our life, as a community of God or as individuals, we will always experience, as Nehemiah did, individual and, excuse me, internal and external threats. Nehemiah faces this at every chapter, specifically highlighted in chapter 2 and 4, which was read earlier. There's this guy, Sandballot, Sandballot, however you want to say it. And of course, most of us, I didn't know, but reading, doing some research, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria, which was their neighbor to the north. And guess what? They were experiencing political and economic decline. And the last thing they wanted to see was their neighbor, Judah, to the south, thrive in a political and economic way. And so they made up all these stories like, ooh, he's becoming a threat to the king. That's why Nehemiah is rebuilding this wall. He wants to be the king. And I love it. This is very subtle, but when you look at chapter 2, it even tells you that Nehemiah picked out his beast of burden to travel by night because he didn't want to be presumably trying to be on a stallion or some sort of animal that would seemingly show that he wanted to be king. Very intentional and strategic. We are called to be intentional and strategic. Interestingly enough, the folks, uh, Nehemiah and all the, the Israelites that he has come and gathered for this service, begin... And do not stop because of opposition. They continue. 
again, because their sense of calling is so strong. The sense of the fullness of time is so strong. I would argue that if those two things are not in place, it is very hard to complete anything that God calls us to do. So here's the rub and where I want to get you in conversation because your minds are working. I can see it. I had a missiology professor uh, who, when I was really struggling when in India after, you know, just seeing just poverty all around and, you know, how can any of us even say we want to own a home or live in a home when most of these people are on the streets, uh, are in cardboard boxes, especially in um, the southeast. And um, he said something that I will never forget. He says, to provide hospitality, you have to have a home. And what he means by that doesn't necessarily mean a physical space, but it is in his intention to provide a place that is safe, inviting, welcoming, that people can experience hospitality. I would say, Providence, and this is where we're going to get very practical, that when we think about Anything from church repairs, light bulbs, drywall, exterior paint, railings, ramps. These are very spiritual things. And unfortunately, we have divorced most of the physical from the spiritual. The mundane from the sacred. And what I see, actually, after entering Nehemiah, is that this is their spiritual act of worship. Romans 12, offer your bodies as a spiritual act of worship. This physical part is part of your spiritual act of worship. And in fact, if we divorce the two, I would say most of us live our lives in sort of a mundane place. Because we're doing dishes. Well... (laughs) Bless Michael does most of them lately. Um, We're doing laundry. We're doing the lawn. We are getting groceries at the grocery store. We're changing diapers. We're potty training. Or wherever you are in your season of life, if those things, the place at which we live, are divorced from a spiritual plane, we're just doing life in a physical way. And that's disturbing. But if, like Brother Lawrence, who talks about practicing the presence of God and washing the pots and pans and grating a carrot, except we don't even do that anymore because we buy them peeled. If we could experience the sacredness, as we saw in Cuba, as Glenda shared at Free For All, where they gathered this cast iron pot, this huge pot, and they had, they had, like, this, again, being strategic and how they carried it to the beach. We were at the beach, and they wanted to make a meal for the whole group. So you had several folks on each side carrying this pot. And each other person around them was carrying various ingredients. 
And the whole time they were singing. And it was this wonder to behold as they made a fire on the beach. As they put the pot down, as they entered and began to cut and chop the vegetables for this soup. All hands, voices working together. It was a spiritual act to behold. And so I think I want to, I don't think I do, I do want to invite us to have the space to talk about this conversation of where the physical and spiritual intersect for you. Where does the physical and spiritual intersect for you? Okay, and if we, if we can't hear each other, I'll get Philip to get the microphone. Otherwise, Bill, speak up real loud. I'm not sure I can do that. <laughs> anyway, uh, back in 93, we moved here from Chicago. Started going to a church in Asheville. The church was built in 1927. The Sunday school building was probably 40 years old. He did a lot of work. So a group of us got together and started repairs. Did a lot of work, a lot of hard work. That same group today goes to the breakfast every Thursday. <laughs> goes had dinner together once a month. Mm. And we're dear, dear friends. Mm. The women have joined the men. It's a mm. The physical that is. Mm. Mm. Thank you. <coughs> All right, Kelly. Back to your kind of light bulb example. Um, so I view things in a very big picture kind of way. Uh huh. You know, God created Earth and everything to be perfect, and then you know the inevitability of the fall completely destroying everything. But then Jesus came and completely redeemed everything. But that we're still living in this tension. Um, waiting for this ultimate restoration that, um, that that anything that takes death and brings it to life like Jesus did um, is pushing us towards restoration. So even that dead light bulb, um, if you see it as you know taking a dead light bulb, replacing it with a live light bulb, that that's just this beautiful picture of the ultimate restoration that we're all yearning for after the redemption when Jesus took mm. death to life. Mm. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm lucky, I guess, with what I do, being, being a hospice chaplain, everything of, of, of um, secular, spiritual. Physical and spiritual. Physical and spiritual. My car. My car gets me to work so I can encourage my coworkers. My car gets me to patients' homes so I get to um, listen to them. Um, the clothes that I wear, I, I'm careful uh, because one day I had uh, two uh, professional clothes. I mean, I, I had the clothes like I was a Wall Street trader, and I went to someone's uh, trailer, and I just sat there thinking, "This is the stupidest thing. I had the wrong uniform. I should have been more dressed down." Um, it was almost just to me, it was almost disrespectful uh, that I showed up in their in their house that way. Um, Physical, my computer to get information I need, my iPhone uh, to play uh, Christian music for patients with Alzheimer's. Um, everything I, I 
use, um, I, I try to keep in mind that it's, it's at God's dis disposal, um, at least when it comes to work. Um, so everything that I use, I try to remember that it's at his disposal to, as Kelly said a second ago, is to, to, to bring redemption and restoration to all things um, that are broken in this world. Thank you. Somebody else? Okay, Alan in the back. I think about a couple of things. Is, um, Marisa and I, uh, for probably five years, have served as youth group leaders at our home church. And a lot of times it's just our physical presence. There's, hmm. there's Bible study, but sometimes it is just being there and letting them talk, letting them be themselves. Hmm. Because they'll tell us things they never tell their parents. Uh, and they seek our advice and seek our thoughts and just kind of be themselves with us. And the other thing I thought about is her mother-in-law, who is the chair of the trustees because it's a Methodist church. And But she is so behind the scenes, and you see so many things that she's doing in terms of maintaining the church. Uh, the, the list here with the Nehemiah list and everything about the center thing, these are all the things that her mother-in-law does. <laughs> behind the scenes, quietly, your mother, yeah, my mother-in-law, her mother-in-law, <laughs> mother, my mother-in-law. Uh, she's doing behind the scenes that people don't know. Mm. You know there, there, there's a few people who have noticed it. A lot of people go, I don't know who did that. Mm. I think somebody from the outside came in and did it. No. Mm. And it's very quiet. Very quietly behind the scenes. That, you know, it's like this. Mm. That's her ministry. Mm. Thank you. Jane? Tagging on what Michael said, he listed those things that enabled him to minister to others. He has to maintain his car. Um, and his tools that he uses, his, you know, he's got to keep his phone charged if he's going to play music for an Alzheimer's patient. He's going to make it on time somewhere. He's going to have to make sure that his car is properly maintained where he's stranded out on the highway somewhere. And he will not be able to minister to that person. Mm -hmm. So if the physical can minister to the spiritual, it needs to be maintained. Okay, thank you. Ashley. Also, I also work in hospice, and I think about, um, you know, we have patients with a lot of physical complaints um, and clearly have, you know, a diagnosis that would, you know, of course, make that reasonable. But um, often providing spiritual and emotional care, their perception of pain and perception of discomfort um, will decrease, you know, within the space of 30 or 45 minutes. It's a very interesting connection. Mind, body, spirit connection. We can't separate the physical from the spirit. Ann? And the, the uh, two things that our church is involved in, one, <coughs> I am of the same worship meal. The, the, the physical component of food, which the concrete and the food, but then there's the spiritual one is gained by both the giver and the receiver in, in, in the spiritual relation of the fact that it represents, the food represents the, the spirit that's behind giving. Yeah, yeah. I, it was a very interesting conversation at Free For All. Uh, as I think it was Joyce Fay who, who talked about that there was a, a gym that was built. A church had a 
means to build a great gym. But then they said the children couldn't use it because it might get what? <laughs> might get dirty, might break, might get messed up. And so the, this is where we, you know, it's, I think ideologically, you know, we're all sort of nodding our heads. Yes, there is a connection. We buy into this spirit, physical. But what happens, right, is when we come together as a body, we have different priorities. As Linda said, what distracts me about the physical property is going to be different than what distracts you. And so, of course, then when we start trying to prioritize what needs to be rebuilt or repaired, we create conversation. And so it's a very important thing as we talk about, which is why that spiritual and physical can't be separated. Because undergirding our physical life and decisions about physical things needs to be the fuel of the guiding spirit. And what I find fascinating is that this whole Nehemiah project did not come from me. It did not come from Michelle. It came from the lay people who came together and said, you know what? We've spent multiple years here not spending hardly a dime on repairs. We've been focused on the right things. Our priorities have been good. We've tried to give more to missions to almost 10% of our budget. But things are falling apart. And by the way, you probably notice there are no golden knobs on the list to fund. We're not, we're not talking about lacing this place and rubies and emeralds. We're talking about repair and reconstruction. Very reasonable. But it does require us all to be in the conversation. And I think that was part of your motivation to get the congregation involved, as you saw in this, the quote here in the beginning of our worship. That if we join hands together, as Evan and a great description in the children's sermon, we can do so much more. And I really think that's the thrust behind Nehemiah. He could not have rebuilt that wall, it is huge. And if you have the inclination to read chapter 3, which is a bunch of names, but it's fascinating because it says, who worked on which gate and which wall? And so what we envision is how cool it would be to walk around and say, this pew was repaired by Bob Brown. This ramp was worked on by Cat Beasley. The light bulbs in Providence House and the doorbell, by the way, which is under repair down here, is being looked after by Dave Lambert. That's the story. That's the people of God coming together. And that's what Nehemiah does. It's just this litany of people working together. To, and guess what? We didn't read this part. Guess how many days it took them to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem? Fifty-two days. That is amazing. In the fullness of time, with God's call... 
the gracious hand, they were able to do that in 52 days. That is deeply spiritual work. And we have been called to something. It's not just the repairs. It is the repairs, but you've heard me say in a short story or in a novel that a building is never a building, just a building. A facilities project is never just a facilities project. It's lifetime friendship, as Bill Scott just shared. We're now there waiting with each other in the waiting rooms at Mission Hospital when each other have their surgeries. A building is never just a building. And so as you find yourself in this story of Nehemiah as an individual and as we as Providence, I want you to ask yourself, what am I being called to? Where in my life is there room to bless the physical with the spiritual? To baptize, to use a good Baptist word, the physical with the spiritual. What is it about my life, my routine, my vocation, the everydayness? Where is there room to make it sacred? Listen. For it's the fool who does not listen. Amen.